0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm your host, Carl Thomas. So the question is, who was the best boss you ever had? Why? And what did he or she do that resonated so strongly with you? More importantly, how are you applying what you learned? From veteran founders and CEOs to emerging next generation leaders, these men and women talk about their experiences in candid, fun, and insightful conversations. So stay tuned, because the hits just keep on coming. Andrew Messick has been the president and CEO of the Iron Man Group since 2011. During his tenure, The Ironman has grown from a triathlon-focused company to the world's largest organizer of mass participation events, with hundreds of standalone events a year across more than 50 countries. Properties include the Ironman Triathlon Series, Ironman 70.3 Triathlon Series, the Rock and Roll Running Series, and the Epic Series of mountain bike events, all globally recognized brands with passionate communities of athletes around the world. Prior to Ironman, Andrew served as the president of AEG Sports and played a leading role in its international development for its sports teams and properties, and these included the Amgen Tour of California cycling event, the Beta Breakers foot race, and the EuroLeague basketball group, as well as AEG China. Prior posts include senior vice president international for the NBA and senior management roles with Sara Lee Corporation and McKinsey and & Company, in Chicago and Amsterdam. He's an accomplished endurance athlete as a four-time Ironman finisher. He also finished in the Ironman 70.3 World Championship event and has completed all six, that's right, all six of the Abbott World Marathon majors. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast series. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thanks, Carl. It's It's a pleasure to be able to join.
0: Well, listen, from McKinsey, which is without question, the pinnacle of uh, global consulting organizations to Ironman, which is also the pinnacle internationally and globally. uh, As we just described, you've had an amazing run so far. You're still going. So the real question here, is there a single boss that you would say was the best boss you ever had?
1: Well, I'm I'm assuming you're not talking about my wife.
0: (laughs) Well, we we all share that, okay? (laughs)
1: <laughs> she's the best boss ever. No, I've, I've been really fortunate over the course of my career to, to have worked with some extraordinary people who've had a really powerful impact on, on my career and on my life. I, I think back to when I was really young and working in advertising in New York City, in you know, my early 20s, right out of college. And, and I think of you know, you know, Sabrina Ross, who was like literally my first boss. And, and the things she taught me all the way through McKinsey and, and into, you know, my current experience, but, but I would say, I think the most consequential boss I ever had was David Stern at the NBA. And, and he was, he was an extraordinary man and an extraordinary leader. And, and someone from whom I, I learned really fundamental lessons, probably the most fundamental lessons that, that I apply in my current job today. And so because you're, you're pinning me down to, to one best boss ever, um, I'm going to go with the commish.
0: Well, not surprising. Um, and you're not the first uh, to, 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 to call him out. So, all right. Since I pinned you down to the commish, who are the, you know, podium finishers two and three?
1: So podium finishers, I had a, a boss at McKinsey. Two two guys that I worked with, one one named Sean Wall and one named Claudio Espazzi, that were, you know, that that really I would say, taught me how to think, and and really pushed me on clarity of thinking, uh, which is a, a big thing that you learn at McKinsey, and and is something that that if you develop that muscle becomes really important for you over the course of your career and it was really around you know the lessons i learned from Sean and Claudio were were ones that were focused on making sure you understand what problem you're trying to solve being really rigorous and disciplined around bringing the right information to bear around how do you how do you make sure your facts are in order and that you've got the right facts and you're evaluating them the right way. And, and then being in a position to, to draw tangible actionable conclusions from that. And, and again, as I think of the arc of my career, that's, you know, I learned an enormous amount at the NBA. How do you build a global sports brand, you know, which is super important for everything that, that, that I've done in my 10 years at Ironman and that we're trying to do in this next incarnation of Ironman's of the Ironman group's growth in trail running and mountain biking and road running. But, but the notion of what's the right answer was something that, that was drilled into me as, as a young you know, at McKinsey and company in, in Chicago and Amsterdam, um, and And that also ha- has proven to be extraordinarily consequential, because there's always a million paths you can take, and being really thoughtful and disciplined around trying to decide if not what the right ones are at a minimum what the wrong ones are and and so i i'd, I'd put I'd put Claudio and Sean at at two and three
0: well, that's super helpful because the discipline and the rigor as you call it around identifying the exact problem that's being solved, and that, by the way, might have a derivative or two, and then collecting the data and and applying the data sets and conclusions the data sets provide you clarity around. Here's my question. Not different than a medical diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. Do do you want the diagnosis from a 27-year-old, fresh out of med school who's who's got a million data points in their brain if you will or a 50-year-old who's got probably not quite as many data points but has seen so many different cases that there's a combination of data analysis instinct and experience
1: so you know the the, the art is in the middle obviously and you know part of of what you know, we talk about in, in the triathlon world a lot is, is that, you know, the sport of triathlon in particular, Ironman, you know, started in 1978. We're old enough to have history, but we're young enough to not be held hostage by the history. And so as we think about, you know, how we make decisions, part of what we try to do is, is we try to leverage the past and our experiences in the past but also to be able to take advantage of everything new that is happening in our world. And, and finding that right balance is is really the sweet spot that we that we aspire to hit. And, and it's not easy because it's easy to say, you know, you're not going to be educated by the past and everything's new and we're going to be disruptive and, and and all of that. But the reality is over time you do build equity in things. And, and part of what everyone who who is in the brand business wants to do is not throw away that equity, but but to build on it in, in ways that are new and fresh and innovative. And so, you know, you, you want the energy of the young doctor, you want the experience of the old doctor, and you hope he, you've got the ability to blend those two things together.
0: Right. Well, I think that's, that's exactly right. And then that's really well said. And in the case of Iron Man, the brand... You know, not to be confused with the Marvel character, Iron Man, and I know that story as you do also. But the point is that there's tremendous equity in the Iron Man triathlon brand, without question. Your your challenge every day is to maintain the attributes, the aesthetics, the core values that that brand represents to your consumer base, to your athlete base, to the cities, counties. And, and municipalities that host your events around the world, but keep, if you will, keep building on that awesome foundation the Ironman brand enjoys, right?
1: Yeah. Well, for 30 of our 40-some years, you know, that process happened organically. People would go to Ironman events around the world. They'd have this transformative experience. Part of it is in the preparation for the events. Part of it is the race experience. And then they would go home to wherever they lived around the world and they would tell all their friends, you've got to do Ironman because it'll change your life. And and for decades, that was the marketing department, was the word of mouth of, of athletes who have gone through this extraordinary journey, been transformed by it, and then tell everyone they know. And to some extent, we still see that. And, and that becomes, you know, the, our athletes are the greatest advertisers for Ironman, you know, because they are, in general, an extraordinary bunch. But, but part of what we've really looked to do as we've looked to build Ironman and to expand into new territories and put races in China and in India, expand through Eastern Europe, Latin America, Africa, is try to be more thoughtful around how we tell those stories and to whom and a lot of that has required us to to be a much more marketing centric and nimble organization because increasingly you know people consume their information off of their phone right they're consuming content off of their phone and and that becomes their gateway to the world and we have to react to that and so as our organization has evolved we've become more consumer centric, more media and content and digitally savvy and that's been a, been a big transformation for us all the while we can't lose sight of the engagement of the athletes or that extraordinary experience that happens at the races and so balancing all three of those things has been you know one of the big evolutions of our company in the last 10 years how, how do we think about talking differently to new generations of athletes while maintaining sort of the core things that have made us a a powerful international brand. Right. You know, if
0: I were sitting in your chair, I'd be thinking exactly the same way. Interestingly, I think the media and marketing overlay here is, you know, it's sort of like the iceberg, right? There's the tip of the iceberg, which is your streaming video, your live streams, your content distribution. Mm -hmm. What's underneath the the water, if you will, is all of the various ways that this fragmented and fractured media landscape continues to evolve and how your organization taps into human behavior, right? You just said it. Mm -hmm. People are consuming all the content on their phone. You know, for the most part, they're, they're not, depending on where you are, like we all sat. I mean, I admit it. I sat last Sunday in front of the TV and watched the amazing Phil Mickelson show. I mean, those things are rare, though, right? I mean, they're, they're fewer and farther between. Here's my point. The pebble in the pond for the Iron Man, arguably, is the Sports Illustrated article way back in 1979, right? Barry McDermott wrote that story and it fascinated people. And over the next three years, it exploded. And sort of the the pinnacle of that early phase was the dramatic ABC television broadcast of the Julie Moss Kathleen McCartney episode, right? So you combine those two pieces of media, old school media, right? Wide World Sports on ABC, Sports Illustrated in print before there was even yeah. a notion of a digital distribution content. Yeah. 40 years on, here you are dealing with essentially the same problem, although it's it's got a million
1: legs now. Yeah, but the good news is, is Julie Moss and Sports Illustrated and, and all of that back in the early 80s, what it did is shine a spotlight on something that is that is fundamental to us as human beings. And that is this notion that is in the back of every one of our heads, every human being's heads around, what's the most I could possibly do? You know, what are what are the limits of things that are out there for me? How how high a mountain can I climb? How fast can I run? How long can I endure? And, and what Iron Man always tapped, and, and increasingly, we see this in mountain bike stage racing, in ultra trail running, in, in marathoning, is these events that we put on and in this company that we built is really designed to allow all types of different athletes to scratch that itch, the the itch of what's possible for me and what is the most that I can do if I really put my back into it. And I think that that was what those articles in the early 80s really unlocked is all these people saying, could I do what Julie Moss did? Would I be able to keep going? Would I have the guts to not quit? And and that still is the beating heart of Ironman. It's it's each person's limit. It's their journey. It's the process by which they go from someone who says, someone like me could never do an Ironman to I'm going to do it, and then you do it. And, and, and that's where the power of the brand really sits. And, and it's fundamental to what we, we do as a company because you know, it isn't just long-distance triathlon, but it is all of these other endurance journeys that people go into, and that could be race across America. It could be you know your first 100-mile bike race. It could be your first half marathon. It could be your first 5K. Right. But for... People, it's signing up mentally or physically or whatever for some big task, you know, some big scary objective that's out on the horizon. Working towards it and achieving it, and and then capturing the benefits in terms of health and confidence and fitness, and that goes to people who do the work. And it's that self reinforcing cycle that is at the beating heart of people who call themselves endurance athletes because it really is what's your next goal it's you're consistently working towards it and in in the process you become fit and healthy and and you feel better and your clothes fit better and you have more energy and there's all these positive externalities associated with it but it starts with chasing the goal and and that's You know, what we spend an awful lot of time thinking about is how do we capture the imagination of athletes and inspire them to chase the next thing?
0: Well, you're, I'm going to shift gears slightly here and then come back because your personal experience as an endurance athlete is significant. We ticked off a few of your accomplishments at the top of this show. The question is, when did you start that sort of your own endurance athlete journey, that moment where you said, you know what? I know this is out there. I'm gonna try to do
1: it, and then I'm gonna do it. I, I'm not unlike a lot of our athletes. You know, I was an athlete when I was young. You know, I ran track and cross country in high school. I played rugby in college. And, and then, like a lot of people, my 20s and 30s were focused elsewhere on career and work and a whole bunch of things. And it wasn't until my early 40s that I really started, you know, I, I looked at myself in the mirror and I didn't like who I was anymore. And and I I liked the old Andrew, the one that, you know, was physically capable, could do things, whose back didn't hurt, whose knees didn't hurt, who wasn't 20 pounds overweight. And you know, I was living in New York City, working for the NBA. And you know, I had this notion. I wanted to start getting fit. I started riding my bike in Central Park. I started doing Tuesday morning rides with people who, among other things, were Ironman athletes. And, you know, a woman named Ginny Soma, who is a freelance television producer, she she and I used to ride two, three times a week. And she would tell me about going to Ironman Canada and being on the side of the road, throwing up and, you know, and then keeping going. And I was like, like this woman is so awesome. And you start asking yourself, could, could I do that? You know, could, could I be that strong, that disciplined, that determined, that tough? And then you start asking yourself, I want to try. I signed up for the New York City Triathlon. You know, this is the first triathlon I ever did in my life. And then you get this self-perpetuating cycle. You know, triathlon and triathletes in general are remarkably welcoming and open. And, you know, that, you know, you want to do a travel? Great. I've got 20 ideas. Do this, do that. Here's where you can swim. Here's where you can run. And sort of found myself with a, you know, with a group of people in New York. And that led me to my first ever Ironman, Ironman Canada in 2005, which led me to Ironman Lake Placid in 2006 and qualifying for the world championships in, in 2006. And You know, and and that is really what put me on my way. And so it was such a positive experience. You have a bad race, but you sit down with all of your friends and you figure out what you need to do to make it better. And you're like, okay, I know what I need to do next time. And then next time you fix that and something else goes wrong. And over time, you know, you keep getting better and you keep getting deeper and more engaged in the community. And, you know, 15 years later, here I am.
0: (laughs) Right. And I think I know the answer to this, or at least I know how I might answer it. And that is, how important do you believe the experience you just described as, let's just call it a little bit of an awakening, right? You looked in the mirror and went, oops. And then you traveled this journey that you just described, and all of a sudden, in 2011, the opportunity arises to become the CEO of Ironman. Is that an aha moment for you?
1: It absolutely was an aha <laughs> moment. And you know, I, I I'd been around the space for a long time. I'd, i I knew all about Ironman as an athlete. I'd spent all this time, you know, working. I was the head of international for the NBA, so like questions of international expansion of the NBA brand and how do you manage that and think about that is something I'd spend a lot of time on. And it's also my nature to say yes to things. I'm I'm the guy who over the course of his career has said, I'm the man for the job. What is the job? <laughs> and and so you know it was really easy for me. And an awful lot of the major career decisions that I made over the course of my life, right or wrong, have been ones where I've worried about whether I would regret not doing it. And so, you know, I, I talked to my wife and she looked at me like I had, you know, an extra eye in the middle of my forehead. And she was like, how would you ever be able to live with yourself if you said no to this? You know, you have an opportunity to make your living leading this company that has a brand that you care about. How could you possibly say no to that? And so, of course, I said yes. Yes. And, and I'll, I'll spare you the details of the first couple of years, but there was, there were some times when I wondered whether it was a good decision right. in the early days, right because the brand was one thing the, the company was something altogether different. And so the journey we went through, a, a small group of us to, to try to turn the Ironman group into, you know, the, the company it is today was really a, a journey and a labor of years. But it's pretty cool where we are right now. It is really cool where where you are
0: right now. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that you would say yes to pretty much everything before you even knew what you said yes to. So in that context, let's talk about the very significant recent history of Iron Man as it relates purely to business from a merger and acquisition perspective, from a private equity perspective, from being part of a larger company that goes public and then it gets taken private. That's kind of an amazing run. I mean, I'll just tick things off here. When Iron Man first sold, it sold in the late 80s, I think 89, for under $3 million. It sold again for $200 plus million. It sold again for $600 plus million. And, you know, you know all those numbers better than I do, but the last 10 years has been quite a business journey, if you will, from one owner to the next, going public, going private. Share with us a little bit about managing through all those changes and what it takes through multiple ownerships and platforms.
1: Well, our journey went from, you know, when Providence bought the company from the Gills family, you know, it was, you know, the World Triathlon Corporation, WTC, was essentially a licensing company. They owned four races. They own the 70.3 World Championships, Kona, Honu, and Ironman Louisville. And everything else was licensed to some third party around the world. And so Providence's investment thesis was really around becoming an operating company. And that's what Providence hired me to do. Then Providence, like all PE firms, has a limited life of, of the investment. And so they looked to sell. We were sold to the Dalian Wanda Group in China, in 2015, we were then merged into Wanda Sports Group, which then went public, as you said, and then we were sold out from under it. it a super tumultuous journey in one in which our direction changed a few times. Providence had us very, very focused on the Ironman brand, on expansion of the number of races, on building out the platform. Wanda very much was focused on building a sports company in China. So all of us spent an enormous amount of time in China between 2015 and 2019. I was in China almost every month for four years, which when you live in Florida is it takes a toll. It's pretty taxing, right you know, as a public company, the market really struggled to understand how our business, our sister company in in Switzerland, and the Chinese operating company, Wanda Sports China, how those three things interacted and, and created value. And then ultimately we were set, sold out from under that to advance who, who's our current owner along with or Kyla. And I think we're in an environment now that's much more stable and long-term growth focused. And I think we're all, all of us on the management team are pretty excited about that, but you know, we've, we've gone through many different owners and many different management philosophies which has been interesting and you know, it's been a, quite a, an adventure and a journey, but also it requires a lot of adjustments and, and changes in terms of how you adapt to, to what your owners want and what your owners care about and how they want to interact with you.
0: Right. That is really amazing. Uh, so it, it, at this moment in time with, in your words, solid long-term focused ownership, which is always great for a management team to have. There's always been, at least from my perspective, this ongoing tension, sometimes healthy, sometimes not so much, between and among, if you will, the sort of global elements of the sport of triathlon, right? Here in the U.S., USA triathlon. On the global stage, the ITU, now world triathlon, And those dynamics between and among a privately held organization, such as Ironman, and the world of federations, which is the absolute requirement to get the sport on the Olympic program, which, as you know, occurred in in Sydney in 2000. And so talk a little bit about that tension. Healthy, not so healthy, good, bad, indifferent.
1: Well, I think we view ourselves as partners, both with world triathlon and with USA triathlon and all around the world, you know, triathlon Australia, you know, triathlon Canada, all all of the federations. And what what we share with all of them is a very strong interest in the sport of triathlon being healthy. Right. And, And, and that, you know, historically, the focus of most of the international federations and most of the national governing bodies has not been in the area where we play. And that is, and that is race organization and age group athletes. You know, typically, international federations and, and the NGBs are much more focused on international competitions and the elite side of the business. And, you know, how do you manage the Olympic games? How do you manage world championships? How do you manage regional champions, ch- championships and national championships? And so while it, it seems like there's a lot, of, a lot of cooks in the particular kitchen, there's less than you'd think. And so, you know, we are super supportive of, you know, what, what happens in the Olympic movement, you know, both nationally and internationally. We want triathlon in, in the Olympics and in the broader sport movement to be more prominent because that, that helps us. That inspires more people to want to race. And in a lot of the athletes who compete in the shorter distances when they're young and super quick eventually will will evolve and move into our ecosystem and, and race professionally as age group, as pros. So we look and, and try pretty hard to, to coordinate and to support each other. And I think by and large are the partnership that our teams have with, with World Triathlon and, and that I have in particular with Marisol. And on the USA Triathlon side, it's, it's the same. I've got a great relationship with Rocky. And, and we really look to try to help each other because if we're all able to work together effectively, you know, we really do have a rising tide. That's awesome.
0: And I agree with that across the board. You know, I was instrumental way back when in helping get triathlon on the Olympic program. And I've always felt that there was a solid synergy if we could get past sort of the, you know, the political climate, if you will, that w- where, where the rising tide helps all boats, right? And that's just kind of the the notion I, I always had. And it sounds to me like you think exactly the same way, which is great. So here we are in you know, late May 2021, the world is opening up. COVID is waning, let's just say that. Your last year has been really tough, an explosion of virtual events. It's been the same on the running side. It's been the same on the cycling side. Now with with live events coming back, do you see a sort of a blend going forward of hybrid virtual plus live events? Or do you think it's going to get back to, you know, okay, it's only going to ever be show up in wherever, right? Kona or St.
1: George. So I, I think that, that an enormous number of people were introduced to the benefits of Connected Fitness during the pandemic. Through our platform, you, know, you saw you know, dramatically enhanced participation numbers on Peloton, Zwift, all, all of these other types of, of platforms. And, and some of those gains are going to stick. I wouldn't say all of them likely, but there's real benefits to that type of training. And there's a social component that I think a lot of people really like. I, I think that there is nothing that matches the, the benefits of a real event. People being with other people, you know, people on a race course, you know, not on a treadmill in their, you know, in their gym or in their home but people racing on the roads, swimming in the ocean or lake or or river. And what we hear overwhelmingly from our athletes, the ones that haven't raced, how badly they want to race, and the ones that have, because we've been racing in the United States for the last six weeks, how great it is to be back with other like-minded people, you know, and and to be able to, to have the tribe come together in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Chattanooga, or Galveston, Texas, or St. George, Utah, or Haines City, Florida. And to be with your people is something that people have missed terribly in, in this last 18 months. And, and I think that we're going to see a renaissance for events because being with like-minded people engaged in activities in which you're passionate is just one of the best and coolest things out there. And and people are gonna be reintroduced to that in the United States in the the coming months, and it's gonna remind them how much they love it.
0: I sign up for that in a heartbeat, whether it's a family gathering on the upcoming Memorial Day weekend or the 4th of July, all the way to Super Bowl, World Cup, Olympics, as the world reopens the, what I'll call pent up demand for, to your point, the tribe getting back together in that moment, at that venue, in that location with like-minded folks, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's work colleagues going back to an office, or whether it's this global community of Ironman triathletes that can't wait to get back to the start line, I think you're 100% spot on listen, Andrew, we've got just a few minutes left and I want to go to the three sort of regular bits we do on on every episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. And it starts with your favorite mistake. You know, the, the one that you learned the most from in your career and the one that has stayed with you and you continue to use that as sort of a touchstone as you manage going forward.
1: So when I was at McKinsey, I had an opportunity to leave the Chicago office and go work in Amsterdam. And because I, I mentioned earlier, by, my inclination is always to say yes. Um, I, I said, yes, of course. You know, and, and so my wife rejiggered her career and we rented our house in Chicago and we moved to Amsterdam. And it was a professional disaster. You know, The, the, the culture of the, the McKinsey office in Amsterdam was different from Chicago and different from me. I I didn't really fit in. The mentors that I'd had in Chicago weren't really there. And it it set back my McKinsey career a lot. And it was one of the things that that fundamentally caused me not to chase partnership at McKinsey. And, And so that was clearly like a career error. But it also opened the door for me to live outside the United States as an adult. And and opened the door and opened the eyes of my wife and I of the size of the world out there, and that ultimately led us to live in London and then in Australia and then in Canada, and it was those experiences that gave me the opportunity to go work for David Stern at the NBA, because I was a guy who had lived all over the world, and none of that would have happened if I hadn't you know taken this misstep by going, you know, going to Amsterdam and getting, you know, just punched in the mouth by an organization that, that was just really different for me and where I just didn't fit in. So I look back on that and it it was like a painful experience, but it took me to a place that has been really good for me and a place I wouldn't have gotten without it. And so I tried to tell people and, and give people some context that, You know, sometimes the things that don't work turn out to be the things that are most instrumental in in your success later on. And, And sometimes it's hard to tell.
0: Well, sage wisdom from experience. So everybody listening here, just take note of that one because a misstep can put you on a path that you never imagined on the one hand and that you are still on and are the huge beneficiary of. So number two, your favorite female artist or band musically?
1: So this is embarrassing <laughs> because like, I, I wanted to say like Kiri Tekkenawa or Renee Fleming, but but the real answer is the Go-Go's. I love that. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Um, and, and so like, I, I'd like to be like super sophisticated and erudite about this or, and I thought about like saying, like, you know, the Bronte sisters or, you know, but, but it's the Go-Go's, Belinda Carlisle and the girls who were like my favorite band when I was like super young and I still love a lot of that music.
0: Of course you do. Those things just they they play, they play and you, that, that's a touchstone for you that's that's a great call out right there. The last one, the pithy one, uh, words matter. we both know that, what you say, what you don't say, what you do, what you don't do, especially in a leadership position. So
1: your favorite word and why? So a, a word I use a lot, and have used a lot recently is wacky. And especially in this day and age when so many words are infused with a ton of dogma, wacky is a word that isn't used very much. It connotes a lot and it leaves an enormous amount up to your imagination. And and so if someone comes up to you and pitches something to you, rather than say someone just told me like this terrible idea. It was like someone just told me this like really wacky idea. And people go, wacky? What does that mean? And I go, well, let me let me tell you. So it lets you express skepticism. It lets you show a little bit of amusement or bemusement, but it also is it's it's vague enough to not necessarily insult anybody.
0: Exactly. Well, this, this this has been a great few minutes. Thank you so much for doing it. By the way, it's been anything but wacky, but I love that word. Andrew, I can't thank you enough for being a part of the Best Boss Ever podcast series, and I want to wish you and your entire organization the best of luck as we, as we roll out the balance of 2021 and head into 2022 sort of at the top of our collective games.
1: Thanks, Carl. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website at thebestbossever.com, where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter.